I think the greatest thing about having kids uh, around is you just never know what they're going to come up with. For instance, I never thought you could use a palm branch, the symbol of peace, peace as a nunchuck. But they did some great uh, sword play with those. But uh, the Simon, the, Ze the Zealots uh, did stay peaceful for the Hosanna, so we've got to... Did you catch their little signs when they came in? No. They, their pop quiz, Hosanna, what, anybody know what that word actually means? Save us now. Save us now. Says Kathy, you read the transcript from Friday. <laughs> That's cheating, Kath. But it's good. Hosanna, it is an interesting word. And if you notice the uh, little posters the kids came down with, the, uh, Chris and um, Brenda actually had them make posters with the exact word. That's what was said. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the, uh, the son of David. And uh, the opening question I have for us is, when we say the word Hosanna, when we say the word Hosanna, are we getting it right or almost right? Are we getting it right or almost right? And by that, I don't mean the pronunciation or the, the uh, basic definition of the word. I mean, do we understand the deeper meaning of what Hosanna is, what it means? The story of Palm Sunday, it's all about a crowd, kind of like we simulate in here with the kids coming in. But it was a crowd who had historical roots in this word. They had historical roots in their culture in this word, and there they were saying it, and they got it right almost. They had it right almost. The tragedy to having it almost right for them was eternal loss. In fact, their very nation disappeared within a generation. And if you trace it back to this week, it's because they had this word, almost right. Almost right. Do we have it right or almost right? Well, let's back up to the basic definition we were talking about. And yeah, we did cover it on Friday in, in, in greater depth, but it's a question that's extremely important whether we have it right or almost right. Uh, we did, in, uh, as we went into that on the Word for the Week on Friday, there was an excerpt I, we borrowed from uh, a Christian writer, and I like it so much what, how succinct it is, I thought I would just share it. It bears repeating even today. <clears throat> in an article about the word Hosanna, the Christian author, Penny Noyes, put it like this. Hosanna also appears to have multiple meanings beyond a mere save me Lord. It's a cry for salvation and also is a cry of thanks. Two polar opposites coming together. Cries for help and cries of praise. It's typically spoken in a rejoicing fashion. People who shouted it often intended to say, at last salvation has come to us. After a long wait, it's finally here. The word comes from Two roots, Yesha and Ana. Yesha stands for save or deliver, and Ana 
for please, more correctly, please now. All you parents probably have that down when your kid goes, please. You guys get that. You know, usually they want something right now. And actually, in uh, our approach as the children of God, that's what it is. Please, God, now. So, in essence, the word boils down to please save us, our deliverer. There's a depth and a history to the term, and this goes back thousands of years, even before we have the uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ. It was a term that evolved from the, the original ancient Greek, or Hebrew, I'm sorry, then to the Greeks, then to the Aramaics, comes down to us in English on Palm Sunday, and there we are saying the word, not uh, Yeshua'ana, but Hosanna, Hosanna. And when we call out this one powerful word, it's saying, Lord God, Messiah, please save us, please deliver us now, because we believe you can. If we were to take the whole meaning, it's more like that. Lord God, Messiah, please save us, please deliver us now, because we believe you can. The, the immediate outcome then, what is, when you say this, if you're talking to the Messiah and you're saying, God, I believe you're God and I believe you can deliver us, deliver us now, what's the outcome from that? Well, it's anticipation. If you ask God to do something and you believe he can, then, then you're anticipating what's going to unfold next. That's what this day is supposed to be all about. What God will do next. Deliver us. Huh. Here comes the question though. Deliver us from what? Deliver us from what? It's a crucial question. And we can have the most sincere anticipation. But if our assumptions are off. And we're anticipating the wrong thing. It's just not going to turn out very well. We can be sincere in what we're anticipating, but be off on what that is and have it come to nothing at all. How can you say that? What's the proof? Jerusalem's the proof. The original Palm Sunday is the proof. The original uh, Holy Week is the proof. Right there at the gates of Jerusalem, there was a wrong assumption that was going on about the Messiah. And then everything went sideways through that week for those people. And by the way, it really wasn't the same crowd that was there for Palm Sunday, that was there for the crucifixion at the end. The word Hosanna that was, was being shouted was mainly Jesus came. There was a whole bunch of people anticipating Christ. They followed him to Jerusalem. There were some people there who knew who he was. Uh, not all Jerusalem, but many. And those were the people shouting Hosanna. They believed this was the Messiah. The people at the crucifixion were those who were influenced or even paid off by the Sanhedrin, and they were yelling, crucify him. Why is that an important distinction? Is this, is that we had a bunch of people who sincerely believed, and the only thing that went wrong there wasn't that the crowd as a whole switched, it's that those who knew better remained silent. That's the lesson there, is those who knew better remained silent. 
And we can't really blame them. Why did they remain silent in this midst of what was going on? A good part of it was confusion. It was confusion. Why were they confused? Because they anticipated the wrong thing. And we can give them some, some leeway on why they anticipated the wrong thing. Uh, we have to give them grace in this because we all do the same thing that they did. We anticipate what we desperately want. Isn't it amazing how we hear what we want to hear? We anticipate based on what's happened before. We anticipate through our cultural filters. I'll confess this one is that I was told the Bible meant something from the culture and traditions that we had, and not that it was all wrong, but it was amazing over a period of, well, I know I'm not that old, I don't, you know, but over a few decades that I learned that, well, no, if I remove my cultural filters, it actually meant something slightly different to the people who were saying it. But that's how we anticipate stuff. That's how we anticipate what's going down. down. And the, the deliverance that these Hebrew people were looking for can understand. This word goes back nearly 2,000 years. And nearly 2,000 years ago, when the word deliver us came up, they were delivered physically from Egypt, the physical enemy. And <clears throat> in six centuries before, after that, or six centuries before uh, Jesus is coming through the, uh, the Eastern Gate, Babylon was the enemy and they were delivered from extinction from them. And then two centuries before, it was the Greeks and the Maccabeans saw them through that. So when they say deliver us, why shouldn't they think the Romans? God's going to come and deliver us from the Romans. And it's going to be a golden age and he's going to conquer our physical enemies. It's understandable. That's kind of what went down before. All the same, they were anticipating the wrong thing. There were a few hints along the way, right? Here he comes in, the king of kings, the Messiah, riding on a donkey. Well, wait a minute, a donkey, not a horse. A horse is the king of war. A donkey's the king of peace. Oh, well, maybe he's thinking after he kicks out the Romans, we'll have peace. And he never did speak of a military or political victory, but that kind of went by the wayside too because they were hearing what they wanted to hear. Suffering under the Romans, that's got to be why he's here. But the real enemy... Here's the thing. And this is where it gets uncomfortable because we're a parallel for these folks. The real enemy was not Egypt. The real enemy was not Babylon. The real enemy wasn't the Greeks or the Romans. The real enemy was their own sin nature. For all the pain that Israel went through, who caused it? They walked away from <laughs> the promise and the covenant they had with God, and that's what happened. Hosea 4.1, I found this uh, kind of funny. I chuckled at myself, is that here we are talking about Palm Sunday, and the Palm Sunday passage is nowhere in this sermon. Instead, it's what it's about. Hosea, a prophet from hundreds of years before this event. Chapter 4.1, 
Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. You children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no, no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. What went wrong? Why were there Babylonians and Egyptians and Romans in the first place? There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint. With bloodshed upon bloodshed, therefore the land will mourn. There you go. You want to know why it's coming down? Therefore the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. This is what happened in history. So what happens? Finally, God himself shows up in the flesh, in person, to destroy the real enemy once and for all. And the real enemy is not the Egyptians or the Romans or the Babylonians. The real enemy is within them themselves. It's the sin nature. Same thing that's in us. Same thing that holds us all in bondage. So later, a Hebrew writes to the Hebrews in the letter we call Hebrews. See how systematic the Bible is? Hebrews chapter 10, 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, this Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made uh, his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Now a Hellenistic Jew, Paul, is talking to the Corinthians and he's quoting the Old Testament. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the sin, strength of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In short, you can't do it, but God can. Only God. In the long life of Israel, there were they were acutely aware of the symptoms, but refused to acknowledge a disease. They were under oppression of, of physical enemies because of the disease of their own sin. Because they had put distance between them and the God they claimed they followed. How different are we? They put difference, uh, a distance there. They saw the symptoms. They couldn't uh, refute those, but they refused to see the disease because it was too personal. A sermon's a great thing until it gets too personal. It was too comfortable to not let go and too uncomfortable to acknowledge it was there. So they hoped for relief from the immediate pain. They were looking for relief from the symptoms. 
drive out the Romans. Just don't mess with what's going on in the inner workings. In the inner workings of our religion, the way we like it, the inner workings of what we are physically, just don't mess with that. We might wonder, for all the traditional assumptions about the Messiah, could they have known differently? Could they have realized this ancient people, could they have anticipated Christ coming for why he really came? Well, 700 years before, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And he gives the clearest picture of what the Messiah will do seven centuries before he shows up, even better than anything you find in the New Testament. And it was there for those who hungered, not for what they wanted, but for actual truth. How much do we hunger for the real truth about God, about ourselves? And they wanted it, if they wanted it more than our own personal needs, what would they find out? Well, we know at the birth of Christ, he hasn't even begun any ministry. And uh, Simeon, who spent all his time at the uh, temple, had an anticipation that he would see the deliverer of Israel, and he recognized Jesus for who he was right off the bat. There was a prophetess, Anna, who was there. And I find that interesting because her name is the second part of Hosanna. It's the now. Her name is now. Please now. And there he was, now. These people recognized it. So they were able to recognize from what God had told them what this Christ would be all about. How about now? How good are we at being right about the Hosanna and the delivering? Or have we changed? As individuals or as a culture, how often are we focused on the physical symptoms and not the spiritual disease? Even as sincere followers, what do we really expect God to do? Deliver us now? Deliver us from what? What are we looking for? What are we anticipating? Take care of some of the problems that we feel acutely, maybe? Or maybe heal the more obvious cracks in our sinful natures, but let's not go too deep. What do we really expect God-sized deliverance to look like? Does it go to the very roots of our being? Does it change things where even we are uncomfortable to look? One of the biggest lessons of the resurrection event is that we will either be enriched or we will be robbed by how we anticipate. And we have to anticipate. If you don't expect anything from God, guess what? You're going to get exactly what you expect. And if you anticipate the wrong thing, well, we've seen how that's turned out in the past. There is a need that we desire the right thing, the truthful thing, not what we desperately desire, but what is distinctly and divinely true. What does God say he is here to do? What does it look like by God's definition? Here's the thing. God isn't interested in taking my little life or your little life and making it better. He's not interested in improving you or me. God came for transformation. 
God came to take where we're just physical life and dead in sin and turn it into spiritual life, to turn it into eternal life. This is the opening Sunday of the Resurrection Week. Opening Sunday. What do we anticipate from the great Hosanna? What do we anticipate from that? Let me offer a point of anticipation. Something very different. I love the wonderful music, musicals and the wonderful passion plays that get put on. But if we look at it, we've developed these cultural features where churches traditionally will recreate or commemorate what this resurrection story was in the past. Sometimes we'll allude to the great resurrection event that's yet to come in the future. And we have to believe and trust in the first and hope in the second, no question. But Matthew 27, 51, really strange verse, found nowhere, nothing quite like it anywhere else in Scripture. But it tells us this, it says when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The ground shook. The earth quaked, rocks were broken, and by the time he rose, that many who were asleep, saints rose and went in to witness in Jerusalem. It's been said that the uh, Christ's death on the cross was the dawn of eternal life. Somewhere in the church's celebration of the resurrection, We've forgotten that resurrection stories are still going on. They started with the death on the cross and they have not stopped. Resurrection stories going on even now. This Easter is going to be really different next week because we're going to focus in on resurrection stories now, it's something for those of you who've been around a while. I can't say old timers, that wouldn't be correct. I just have to say long-term members. I'll just call me an old timer. In this little church, we've had so many people on the brink or under the threat of death that can testify how they've been changed in some resurrecting type way. We've heard Christy Trump's story. Man, he's the only person I know to this day who has been saved while in a coma. If it didn't be anybody, it'd be Chris. Some of you remember Donna Pritchard. What an amazing story. In the hospital, pancreatic cancer, sentence of death, laying there. Some nondescript little hospital chaplain and his wife come in, pray on her. She feels fire through her body. She walks out of that hospital and she was with us for decades after that. Um, Sue gave a, a wonderful testimony back in 2020. Derek gave a wonderful testimony back in 2020 when we were doing the video interviews. We've got a lot to be thankful for. Sandy, sitting there in her Raquel wig, looks really good. 
what she's been through, the resurrection. Kathy for the things she goes through. She show up at her neurology appointments and they'd say, you're not on any interferons? How are you still walking around? Jesus. <laughs> Resurrection stories, God having done things for ordinary people in an extraordinary way. So next week, we're, Kathy has to have some music going on, so we'll have that, but the focus isn't a musical. It's, it's not a reproduction of the crucifixion. It's resurrection stories right now. And I'll probably um, take a lot of heat on this from the ladies, but I'm putting them on the, in the limelight right now. This, Joshua wondering why I was asking if Morgan was going to make it in. This is why. A lot of the stories we heard, some of them we haven't in here. And I was asking the Lord, I said, well, even just two for now, so we can focus two resurrection stories. And we're going to do an interview style next week on how their resurrection stories work, what went down. And we talked and we've, they've been meditating on some questions and all, all of how they might present more than a witness is how this fits into the whole resurrection theme. We're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday now. But I mean now, now. Because today is the word Hosanna. It's the expectation. It's the anticipation. What do you anticipate will happen even in here next week? So I want us to take a little bit of action on this. And, and this is where you ladies are really going to love me. I, I'm just going to ask, ask you to, uh, Morgan and, and Sheriff, you'd come up and just grab a, a seat up here for a minute. Now, in anticipation, they know what they may say to a point. Here's the thing, I want to take pressure off in this way, is whatever you have to say, it's not worth a thing. <laughs> it's not going to do any good at all. The only thing that will do good is if God himself, the one who was resurrected, speaks through you, and oh, will it become powerful. Mm -hmm.